All right, if you'll take your Bibles out, please open them to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter, we come again to this passage. This might be the last week we're on verses 7 and 8, but I'm not going to promise that. So join me in standing, if you would, please, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, starting again at verse 4, focusing our attention today on verse 8. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day to understand hard truth. We pray, Lord, that as we approach your word, that you would give us clarity of mind, clarity of understanding. The ability, God, to receive your truth despite our own human failings. And God, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and hearts. Help us to love you as we ought. And help our love for you to inform and motivate our love for our fellow man. God, help us desire that none should experience hell, but that all should be drawn unto you. God, let that truly be the desire of our heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, the difficulty of truth is its starkness. We don't always like things that simply cannot be avoided and are often painful as well. It's the case with today's passage. It's a painful truth that we must acknowledge and deal with. For attempting to avoid it only endangers us and the ones that we love. God is a God of love and mercy, But he is also a God of wrath. His wrath is beyond our ability to comprehend. And the terror of that reality alone destroys us, let alone the truth of it unpacked and laid bare. His wrath is reserved for those who are not found in Christ and who thus have no advocate, no substitute, and certainly no excuse. They are those who have opted to stand on their own two feet and deal with God man to man, as it were. They will find to their everlasting sorrow that they have not a leg on which to stand. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and dreadfully wicked. Who can know it? The heart is the issue here. The heart is bad. And I want to emphasize at the beginning that this is not talking about a difference in seed. Good seed is sown. We all receive the water of the word. We all receive the, the advance of the gospel. There is no person, especially in this land, who could say with any honesty, I never heard that. There's no person in this land especially who could say with any honesty, I didn't know what God required of me. We know it. And and the truth is, is that all of us, according to Scripture, have it written on the walls of our hearts so much so that we are without excuse. Romans 1 says that there is not a man alive who can say with any honesty that they didn't know that God was who he says he is. Now, they may not all know exactly the way to honor and to seek the Christ if they've never heard the gospel, but that doesn't change the essential sin, which is, I love me more than I love God. 
That's human nature. Human nature says, my desire is for myself. And so we are all guilty. And we are all guilty of the same sin. And that sin is a desire to be God instead of a desire to honor God as God. We're talking about bad seed. No, we're talking about bad hearts. We're talking about bad issues in the mind that that are born out of us that reject the simple truth of God's word. In the end, every single one of us is guilty. And it is not the care that God gives to us. It is not the, the mercy that he gives. I am forever amazed when I consider the reality of common grace. When I consider just how good God is to all men and how he lavishes such talent and mercy and goodness on some men who hate him from the bottom of their souls. And still he gives them good things. Still he gives them magnificent talents and great abilities and minds that that turn the mysteries of the world or the ability to move men's hearts with song or word or the ability to, to do things with their hands that literally change the world. But they are still so determined to hate him. This is the evidence of a man's fallen heart. This is the evidence of the fall upon all of us. And out of a dead heart, the only thing that can be produced is briars and thistles and thorns. Out of a man's own nature, there is nothing redeemably good. We are all irredeemably bad, woken, woven through our, in, our entire nature with the, with the reality of the fall and the reality of the sin. And it's a pretense to assume anything else. It's a pretense and a direct denial of Scripture to assume that there are any who seek after God, that there are any who desire Him in any way. For the Scripture affirms that no one seeks after Him, no one does what is right, no one says anything that is good. All we have is poison and wickedness and evil. That is our nature. And so when God lavishes His care on man and pours out the abundance of common grace and man rejects Him, it leaves man guilty. It leaves man deserving of the wrath of God. And it's important to note that in the end, this passage, I want to remind you, is less about the ones outside and more about the ones inside. So they are doubly guilty. These are people who have been not only exposed to the gospel, but exposed to the gospel regularly. These are people who would even tell you, yeah, I'm a believer, but their lives reflect nothing of Christ, and all of their obedience is entirely outward pretense. These are people who are inside the church, and who would deceive the church, and who would tell the church, yes, I belong to God, but their lives and their witness and their testimony are nothing of Christ whatsoever. The, the, the focus of this passage is not even about the ones who are outside. This is not even really about common grace, but it's important to note that that's a truth as well. This passage, remember, focuses on those who would tell you they're Christians. And in the end, if they would tell you they're Christians, but their lives produce nothing but briars and thorns and bad fruit and wickedness, and there is nothing in them of Christ whatsoever then what the scripture tells us is that there is reserved for them a cursing. That there is something coming which is going to be far worse than anything else they could ever have imagined. They have been given every opportunity and every outward help. And the word of God has been lavished upon them. 
They have been living side by side with people who genuinely love God, whose lives genuinely display the fruit of righteousness, and who have been pouring out grace and kindness and mercy to them because that's what Christians do. And yet they still walk in sin and walk in selfishness and seek only to please themselves instead of seeking to honor God. In the end, these are bad earth. It's just bad ground, right? The seed falls on the ground. The seed falls on the heart. And if the heart is the ground in this picture, and that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews gives us, then what we're talking about is bad earth. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the fact that the, that the words bear are two different things. In, in one, it brings forth fruit. In the other one, it bears thorns and briars. And the word to bring forth is, is to like talk about somebody giving a, a, having a baby or the produce which is, which is made out of the earth and the idea of bearing. It's a different word in the Greek. It, it, bear and bear sound the same in English, but in the Greek, it's a completely different word. And in the Greek, the word to bear is the word that you would use to carry out a body. This is a word to carry a corpse to the grave. And so there's a connection in that idea and in that word as well for the idea of a grave. Because in the end, the fruit of the grave is decay and sorrow. And that is the same fruit that we have from sin. No matter what you think about how sin will impact your life, whether you think that sin's going to be warm and exciting and fun, in the end, sin is cold. Because sin is selfish. Sin is only about you, and it's only about your wants. And it casts off the rest of the earth. It casts off every other person who has a say in your life. It casts off every other person who has a stake in your life. If you're committed to your sin, you are committed to your sin regardless of the impact that it has on anybody else. And you need only look at the families that are destroyed by selfish sin to know that that's true. Divorce, drug addiction, abortion, the the, the list goes on and on and on and on about how somebody's selfishness is only going to harm every other person in their life. Sin is as cold as the grave. And and although it promises fire and excitement, it doesn't. It doesn't offer any of that in truth. Sin is also foul as the grave is. I, I, I do not have any desire to open up a grave and find out how yucky something can be after it's been in the ground for years or decades. I have no desire. I know it's foul. I don't have to see it to experience and know that it's foul. But strangely, when we consider sin, there are many who think, well, it looks good. Let's try it and see if it's really as bad as everybody says it is. And still, even when they begin to experience the symptoms of their sin and they begin to experience even the physical repercussions of the things that they do, they continue to pursue it because they are not yet convinced of its decay and foulness. They are not yet convinced of just how terrible this thing actually is. The grave is dark, so too is sin. There is nothing of light in it. And in the end, when a man is committed to darkness, he is walking in isolation from every other person in his life and walking in isolation from every source of hope and every source of truth and every source of life. The grave brings to us nothing but sorrow and hopelessness. And beloved, understand this. When your life is committed to sin, 
It is not the eternal party of the liberated. It is sorrow. It is misery. It is slavery. Sin is that which only desires to destroy you. And those who pursue it do not understand the reality of what it is. Those who pursue sin at the expense of everything else in their life only understand their momentary desire. And whether they tell you they love you or not, whether they express their concern for you, whether they set themselves towards you, in the end, their sin becomes the only thing that they want. And they could not care less if it destroyed you and the rest of the world with you, so long as they got what they want. This is the power that sin holds over those who are enslaved to it. It is a slavery, and sin is the master. And those who live in its clutches have absolutely no hope outside of somebody delivering them. They have no hope in themselves to somehow turn their life around. And any attempt to deliver somebody from the clutches of sin by just mere human exercise is going to fail. They have no hope that their religious efforts are going to save them. There is no God who can deliver them out of the hand of God. There is nothing in the world which can deliver them out of the things that they have woven into their lives by their own rebellion, apart from Jesus Christ. And every man-centered attempt to deliver the sinner is going to fail. There is nothing in the world that can transform anything apart from Christ. And we need to be clear about this. We need to understand that truth because that begins to inform our approach. It begins to inform our decisions. It begins to inform the things that we do and the things that we don't do. It begins to change the way that we look at the issues that face us. There is no question whatsoever that the issues that we are facing as a nation and as a people in this state and in this community All of these issues have at their bottom a spiritual root that has to be addressed. And the weapon that has been given to us to address the issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be gospel-focused and gospel-driven. And if we understand the condition of man and what it actually is, if we truly understand what the issue of sin is, we will understand plainly that the gospel is the only hope there is. But if we're confused about this, if we believe that, well, there's some good in everybody and everybody can can do some things that will move them closer to God and everybody can have something about them which will somehow make them better, then we're going to go with those paths because honestly, they're easier. You say, well, they're a lot of work because you have to do all this stuff. I mean, if you're trusting in God, all you do is pray and speak as he gives you opportunity. That's true, but it also puts an end to self. And we like to feel like we're in control. We like to feel like we're in charge. We like to feel like we have something that we can do to contribute. Like if it's not for us, then that person, they'd be in hell. But hey, I got them saved. I did my bit. I I got out there and I worked really hard and I, I helped them out. Beloved, that path is easier because it assuages our own having to deal with this reality. It it somehow pads the reality of what we are, and we don't have to deal with our own sin. I want to tell you the truth, and I want you to understand it plainly. If you want to make a difference in this world, in anybody's life, the weapon that has been given to you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Period.
You have nothing else. You have the truth of who Jesus is. You have the truth of what Jesus did. You have the fact that the word of God tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So when you proclaim the law of God to somebody, the spirit goes forth with power when God is at work in their lives and God changes them and saves them by his grace. It is not your job to fix it. It is your job to proclaim the truth of who God is and everything that God does. That's your calling. Now the problem is, is that when somebody is not under the working of the Spirit, when you do that, instead of producing a harvest of righteousness, it's actually going to intensify the harvest of thorns. And that can be very disheartening. This is the reality that we face. There are those who are being drawn by God at this moment and those who are not being drawn by God at this moment. There are those who are called by God and will one day be saved and those who are not called by God and who will not be saved. We cannot know who those are. But we can know how we're seeing God work in somebody's life. And sometimes the ones that we're speaking to and praying for and and approaching with with everything we have in us to to see God work in their lives, sometimes the more we, we proclaim the truth of Christ, the more we begin to see them turn away. Now, somebody might say, well, then you need to do something different. No, you don't have warrant from Scripture to do something different. You need to keep doing what God tells you to do, and you need to understand that in the end, it's God's work to save them or not. It's his power, it's his glory, it's his will, it's his choice, it's him. Excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat this morning. So in the end, what it comes down to is that we must walk in obedience to God's commands and submit to his will the results that come from our obedience. Which means that if you proclaim the truth to somebody and they just turn away all the more and and more thorns are produced and more chaos is wrought in their lives, that does not mean that you throw up your hands in despair and say, well, I quit. I'm not doing that anymore. It just means that God is producing what God intends to produce. And even those thorns might eventually turn to a harvest of righteousness because here's the truth. How many of us genuinely love our own misery? We seem to for a little while. But does anybody actually love their own misery? No. So the harder things get, the closer to the end of ourselves we come. So that harvest of thorns and briars and misery that's being yielded in somebody's life might be the very thing that must be produced for God to draw them. You can't know, and that's the point. You have to be faithful to continue doing what God tells you to do, not anything else. That's your calling. But you do need to be prepared for the eventuality of what might happen in somebody's life. And I say this because if you get blindsided by this, it'll knock you off your pins. If you get blindsided by this reality, then the first person that you really pour yourself into that seems to be doing better, and then all of a sudden, they're just gone. It'll set you back. And it'll set you back because your thinking about it has been wrong. 
You actually thought that you had power in some sense to make a difference. You don't. You are the messenger of the King of Kings and you are called to do what he tells you to do and leave the results in his hand. And that can be very hard for us to do. That can be very painful for us to acknowledge and it can be disheartening if we don't actually trust the goodness of God to change the world. It can be disheartening if we don't understand God's intention to change the world. If, if we believe that, that in the end it's all going to rack and ruin, then that kind of creates a hard thing for us to get our heads around. But if we believe that in the end God is bringing maximum glory to himself, that he will do what is best to produce that glory, then we can push through the hard times and we can begin to understand, God, what you're doing is best and I trust you. I don't see how and I don't see all the details of it, but I know you. Which is one reason why everything that we do comes back to the reality of who God is. It comes back to the reality of his power, his glory, his truth, his righteousness, his work. In the end, this is about God doing what God intends to do. And our job as followers of Christ is to be there where he puts us, to be faithful in the tasks that are in front of us, and to speak the truth that he puts into our mouths to speak. That's our job. That's our calling. It is not our calling to change anybody. In the end, the briars and thorns in many people's lives can become a veritable forest. They can become so overwhelming that it's hard to understand how it got so bad. They hinder all good growth. You ever notice that? You get a a briar patch going, you get a bramble going, and all of a sudden, there's nothing growing there but briars. Those patches get dense, and they get thick, and the thorns get longer, and the pain to try and get in there and do something with it becomes worse. Guess what? Sin is exactly the same way. When somebody really commits themselves to ruin, they do a pretty good job of it. And there is nothing in the world that is going to grow in their life that has any value whatsoever apart from that sin. This is the nature of the beast, and we need to understand what it is. It will choke out all existing good fruit, and it will also choke out good plants by encroachment. This is one of the reasons why the scripture is so clear that a church is responsible to exercise biblical discipline. And when a person is refusing to walk in obedience to the commands of Christ... The church has a responsibility to discipline that person, to correct them, to correct them with witnesses, and if they still will not repent, to remove them from membership. That's the church's responsibility. This is not an option. And it's not that the church wants to be mean. It's that the church wants to obey the God whose church it is. See, our problem is that we don't often understand that this is really God's church. We think it's ours. We say, well, I don't want to do that. It doesn't matter what you want to do. It's not your church. It's God's church. What matters is what he tells us. Understand this truth. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 33. Scripture says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. 
and I speak this to your shame. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Briars and thorns grow in bunches. So if that's allowed to remain in a body, guess what happens? It multiplies. If you let somebody stay who is, as we've been discussing for months now, apostate, turned away from Christ, following after their own desires, refusing to submit to the truth of Scripture, if you allow them to remain without being challenged, exercised, disciplined, and if need be, put out, but if you allow them to remain without approaching the, the question and the issue of righteousness, then that church will become infected with their sin. And you don't have to look far to find denominations in their entirety that have been destroyed by this. You don't have to look far to find that even right now the Southern Baptist Convention is on the verge of yet another battle with this over what is right and what is not right, what we will allow and where we will draw the lines and say the Scripture is true or the Scripture is not true. And the first point of passage is the issue of feminism and women preachers. And I say this because right now there are churches in the SBC that despite our mutual covenant have put women in positions as senior pastors and because they are large, powerful churches that spend a lot of money in the SBC, they are refusing to remove them from membership in the SBC. That's a problem for me. That's a problem for me not because I don't like women, but because the scripture is very plain that women are not permitted to be pastors, period. The scripture does not offer room for equivocation on this. And I don't need anything but the Bible to tell me that's true. Now, that's not a popular position. And I'm sure if anybody's listening to this that I'll get emails. And that's okay. I speak what I speak because it is the very word of God. And I am not permitted to tell you anything else. But when a church begins to say, well, I'm not sure that I want to take that stand. I I would rather get along than stand for truth. Then what happens is that the briars and brambles begin to grow in a heap in that place. And everything else gets choked out. What happens is that they begin to become like the weeds of the devil. They begin to come in their entirety. They begin to produce bad things. This is how it works in the world that we see around us. In the end, they are harming themselves and everybody around them. And when wicked men get together, does evil stay small or does evil grow? It always grows. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. Solomon warning his son about people to avoid... I just want you to hear this because often we tend to kind of overlook the progression that's in play here, but it's worth seeing. Proverbs chapter 1, we'll just read from verse 10 to 16. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol. And whole, like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. 
A few more verses. I just want to read this. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. There are not many people who would, out of the gate, succumb to the temptation, hey, let's go kill somebody. But there are many, many people who have done that very thing. Why? Well, because they started off with small sin. They started off with small ideas. They started off accepting the idea in one capacity or another that it's okay to hurt this person or it's okay to do this or it's okay to make this fun. It's okay to live in a way that is not consistent with the totality of the truth of Scripture. And what happens is is that they entice people to come in and join them and immediately the more rats you have together, the more harm they do. One rat can tear things up. A thousand rats... Well, you have a problem. And when sin begins to grow and multiply and feed on its own desires, one man to another, what happens is that things just generally get worse. But in the end, whose blood are they really lying in wait for? Their own. In the end, they will be the ones who ultimately pay the price for their rebellion against God. They are, they are deceived even as they seek to deceive. Now, wicked men become a refuge for all sorts of evil. They become a refuge for the most wicked of deeds. And large sins are more easily produced in the company of small ones. So the more comfortable you become with the small wickedness, the more easily the great sins find a foothold. I have counseled over the years dozens of men who have been unfaithful to their wives and who have had all sorts of problems in their marriages because of that. And I cannot think of a single one that did not begin that sad journey with pornography. Every single one of them began in a small sin which is socially acceptable. And as they gave themselves over to that, it eroded the foundations of their marriage and eroded the foundations of their love for their wives And in the end, it destroyed them. You see, none of them would have said on their wedding day, yeah, I'm going to cheat on you. But after a while, it becomes acceptable because you've already been feeding the monster a little bit at a time. If you do not draw the line for sin hard and fast and say this is not acceptable in any way, shape, or form, you will find that the small sins you allow to take root in your life become the large ones that destroy you. And this is true across the board for all of us. We have to understand this, and we have to hold the line, and we have to make sure that what we're producing in our lives is a harvest of righteousness rather than a harvest of weeds and briars. There is no room in our lives for even one small pet sin. We ought not to endure it. We ought not to be okay with any of it. In the end, the, the wicked deeds wound and maim. And the, the word for thorn is tribalos. And it's derived from two words meaning point, spike, or dart, and the other meaning three. And it's the sand goat head is the briar that's in, in play here. So you know the goat head. You know that awful thorn that always has one point up no matter how it lands. And when you step on it, you know it. It's brutal and it's vicious. 
And it's the same design that the Roman caltrop was made from, that spiked triune thing that would stand always with one point up in the air and it would cripple horses when somebody rode over it. This is the picture. And this is the reality of our sin. You cannot, you will not escape the damage that your sin brings into your life. And the man who believes that he can is deceiving himself. The harvest in his life will be briars and thorns. It will be death and destruction. And it will only hurt him and the people in his life that he says he loves. Beloved, this is an issue that we have to engage with. This is an issue that we have to be real about. Because everything that we do as the people of God to try and change the world has to deal with the reality of what sin actually is and what sin actually does. There is no room for compromise on matters of sin and righteousness. And we don't need to be ugly about it, but we need to be clear about it. We need to be clear in our own minds because, again, that informs our thinking. So what do we do with these sins? Well, thorns embedded fester and rot. Amen? It never does any good to just leave the thorn in. Not even a little tiny piece of it. I had a splinter in my finger last week, and I thought I got it all out, but I noticed after a couple of days that the end of my finger was really sore, which tells me what? There was a piece of it still in there. So I went to work with a knife, and I dug the thing out, and it feels so much better now. That's true of sin. If you let it sit, it is only going to harm you, and in the end, it is only going to fester and rot your soul. It will cause you harm beyond your ability to comprehend. And if you're sensitive to the things of the Spirit, you'll catch it when it's small. But if you're not, you'll blind yourself to the reality of it. You'll look at somebody else doing the exact same thing that you're doing, and you'll think to yourself, how dare they walk that way? How dare they act that way? How dare they talk that way? How dare they? When you're doing the very same thing. I think Jesus told us something about that in a log and a splinter. You see, we, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be very clear about the reality of what this looks like on the inside as well. Those with sense and with a mind that thinks will draw the thorn out of the flesh. Those with spiritual sense and understanding will draw the sin out of their lives and they will repent of it. They will turn away from their sin and they will ask God for mercy and ask God for forgiveness and they will find in Him that which is needed to excise that thing which is causing them damage. It is only God who can do this. And we need to understand that in light of the situation that we are facing. We should never be comfortable with our sin. We should never be okay with it. We should never excuse it. And we should certainly never make a way for it. When you find yourself organizing your life in such a way to allow you to do something that you know you shouldn't do, you have a problem that is larger than you are. And every single one of us knows what I'm talking about, at least in the confines of your own heart. We all exercise that practice. We organize our lives, we structure things in such a way that I can do this thing that I know I probably shouldn't do this. Beloved, when you do that, you are admitting already that you are a slave to that thing. 
and the problem is larger than you give credit for it. It is time for us to awaken to righteousness. We should hate our sin. We should seek to destroy it, and we should fence our lives away from it. In other words, instead of organizing your life so that you can do the thing, you should make it impossible to get it done without other people going, hey, what are you doing? You should organize your life in such a way that it is not even conceivable that you would engage in that practice. It's hard to do. It takes discipline. It takes willingness. But more than that, it takes intention to honor God. Look, we all should acknowledge the truth that we are powerless against our own sin. We all should acknowledge the truth that when we face it on our own, we lose. We need God. We need His strength. We need His wisdom. We need His people. We need the things that God has put into our lives to defend us from the wickedness that wants to destroy us. We need all of that. And if we need that stuff, and we acknowledge that we need that stuff, then it should stand to reason that our lives would demonstrate that. For instance, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That is the most basic fence imaginable for a believer. God's word tells you what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. Because the main thing that sin does to trap people is lie to them. It tells you, oh, this is okay. It's, it's just a little bit. It's all right. Nobody minds. God doesn't really care. Nobody's going to know. How would they know? Amen? But when you open up the Word of God, God says plainly, thou shalt not. I hate that. Don't do it. I will punish those who do this thing. Those are the words of Scripture. So when you open up the Word of God and you start to look at what God's Word says, it becomes a light to your feet, a lamp unto your path. It gives you guidance to understand the truth of how the world actually is and cuts through the fog of lies of sin like a knife. We need that help. But how many of us don't commit Scripture to memory so that we have it hidden in our hearts? We have all the excuses imaginable. I've heard them all. I've used them all. But the Scripture says, if you want to not sin against God, hide His Word in your heart. Commit His Word to memory. Plant it deeply within you. The scripture also says that the Holy Spirit has a job among others, which is to bring to mind everything that Jesus has said. So if you have trouble memorizing scripture, I would encourage you to make it an object of prayer and ask him to help you memorize scripture. Because I've talked to a lot of people over the years who can ramble off baseball statistics from a thousand players that nobody ever heard of but tell me they can't memorize Scripture. You know, I think there's an inconsistency there. Use what God gives you. Use the tools that God Himself has provided 
to enable you to fight against sin so that your life does not bear briars and brambles, but instead bears fruit. Because what keeps us from bearing fruit is sin. How many of us have ever had a garden that we got to let the weeding get away from us? All of us have, right? How much fruit does that garden bear when the weeds have overtaken everything? Little to nothing. It's important. And it may not be the most pleasant of tasks, but it does yield a harvest. And it yields a harvest of righteousness when you fence your life away from things that dishonor God. Look, put things in your life that are designed to keep you from indulging in the works of the flesh. If, if, you, if you are a person who struggles with weight, I can't imagine anybody like that, um, don't have a mini fridge in your house or in your office that's stocked with soda and candy. Make sense? If you have trouble staying away from the sweets, don't bring them into your house. If you're addicted to pornography, I would say at the outset, if you can avoid it, don't own a computer. <laughs> Period. If you can't do that, then at least make sure that you don't have it any place private where you can engage in that alone. Put it in the living room. Amen? There's programs you can put on it. One of them is called Guardian, I think it's Guardian Angel or something like that. And it's not a site blocker. What it does is it distributes every website you visit to people that you ask it to. It's pretty good. Pretty good defense there, right? If I'm going to go surf porn, I don't want my wife seeing it or my brother that I would then be ashamed or anybody else that I would have on my list. It's good defense because sometimes we have to acknowledge the truth that we're too weak to deal with this ourselves. Put stuff in your life that will keep you from engaging in those practices. Build stuff into your world to keep you from sin. It's important. Because it's how we honor God. But more than that, it's how we make sure that our lives are not what's being described here in verse 8. Lives that receive rain, receive grace, receive care, receive the abundance of the seed of the gospel, and still only yield briars and thorns. I don't want that for myself, and I don't want that for any of you. So do what is needful to fence your life off from those things so that those briars and thorns do not have a chance to take root. Because what happens after they take root is worse than what happens in the midst of them. There is a threefold curse upon this ground. This cursing is a a time continuum. And it starts off and it says this, They are presently rejected. They are prepared for cursing. And they are finally reserved for total destruction. And it's the same manner that we as as people on the earth deal with thorns. You pull thorns out, do you just immediately throw them away? No, typically we leave them lay, let them dry out. Then we burn them up. That's exactly what's being described here. It's rejected, it's pulled out. It's near to being cursed. I've set you aside so that you dry out so that when the fire takes hold, guess what? You're going to be destroyed. 
This is the end for lives that have no hope of walking in truth. They are rejected of God. They have been reproved. God has said, there is no room for you in the kingdom. There is no place for you in that place that I have made for my own. It is a currency of your life is not accepted in the heavenly exchange. Okay, think about this monetarily. And I'm not begging for money, but track with me for a minute. What we do in this life becomes for us the currency of our praise in heaven. You say, where in the world do you get that radical idea? Well, the scripture talks in lots of places about us receiving crowns for things. Crown of righteousness, crown of life. But when we see the crowns in heaven, what's happening? They're throwing them at the feet of the Father in praise and worship. So if what we receive for reward is crowns, and what the crowns are used for in heaven is worship, you see where I get that? The crowns, the rewards of God's mercy in our lives, are the currency of our worship. We receive from Him good things so that we can return those good things back to Him in praise. Okay? So if your life is not producing anything of righteousness, if your life is not receiving any applause or praise from the Father, if your life is only yielding briars and thorns, then do you have any currency for the worship of heaven? Even if you're saved, let's just set that aside for a minute. If you're saved, or do you have anything for the currency of heaven? No. You're the kind of person that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians as somebody whose life has been examined by fire and has been burned up. I've quipped on more than one occasion that there's going to be people in heaven where they walk by and you go, you smell smoke? There's nothing there. Their whole lives have been consumed because they lived only for themselves and they lived only for this life. But this person, just described in Hebrews 6, 8, it's worse. Because in their life, there is nothing of Christ. And there is nothing of truth and nothing of righteousness. And all they have is briars and thorns and no life in them, and they have no part whatsoever in the currency of heaven. They will be cast into the outer darkness. They will be condemned. They will be damned. And they will be destroyed in hell. In the end, the only thing that is produced by them is wickedness and vice, and God is not blind to it. And he will not remain silent about it because its impact is so destructive on the true church. Its impact is so terrible on those who actually follow after Christ. It's infectious. It is corrosive to everything that it touches. And in the end, they are to be rejected by us because they are rejected by God first. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. So where the writer of Hebrews talks about them being rejected, this is the picture. 2 Timothy 3, and we're just going to read the first five verses. Know this, in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than loving, lovers of God, 
having a form of godliness, but denying its power. From such people, turn away. We're obligated, we're commanded to reject people who walk in that way. We're commanded to look at it and acknowledge the truth that the pretense of righteousness is a vile thing in the eyes of God. Look at Jude. And we're going to start reading at verse 4. Certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending for the body with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring an accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear. They are serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead and pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain an advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. So is division something that the church should tolerate? No. In fact, Paul tells us, warn a divisive brother twice, and after that, Reject him completely. Be done. Warn him. Be done. In the end, we do not tolerate divisiveness because what the Spirit calls us to be, what God commands us to do according to His Word, is to be united together in love. That's what we're called to do. That's what God commands us to be, is united together in the likeness of the triune God. That we are to love one another with the same love with which God himself loves. If we are not going to walk in this, we are to be rejected. And those who will not walk in this are themselves to be rejected by us. This rejection is not optional. 
It's compulsory. It's mandatory. God says this is his will for the body, that those who will not walk in obedience to his commands need to be warned and then let go. You say, that sounds awfully harsh. Well, it does. But on the other hand, remember, God is always at work. And we have to trust the one who commands us to do what he commands us to do because we don't know how he's working in anybody's life. We can't know. All we can do is judge the content of the fruit. Those who walk in this way without repentance are not only rejected, but near to being cursed. And the approach of God's doom is often slow and ponderous. And this is a mercy. It gives us time to repent. So we see things waxing worse and worse. We see things becoming more and more painful. We see somebody's life wandering down a path, and we say, I don't understand. I don't know how to stop it. And yet God tarries in his judgment. He tarries in destroying them. He seems to grant mercy on some occasions. And in the end, we look at it and we don't understand. But understand this. It is the mercy of God granting time for repentance. And we need to know that. We need to trust his hand. Because God is quick to give grace. God is quick to give comfort. He is slow to bring judgment and destruction. In the end, there's time to turn from your sin and call out to God for mercy. If there is life, there is hope. And this is always a true thing. So long as there is life, there is hope for somebody. And it does not matter how far their lives have wandered away from God because we cannot ever know who is utterly rejected of God and who is merely being shaped for repentance. We must always approach the question with fear and trembling. And we must always approach the question with an eye towards grace. Remember that you yourself were saved by the grace of God. You did not love God when God's grace intervened in your life. You hated Him, the Scripture says. You were running as far and as fast away from Him as you possibly could. And it was the grace of God that arrested that fleeing and brought you to life so that you could cry for mercy. He did this. You did not do it. Which means that in their life, the same dynamic is true. You say, but look at how hard and fast they're running away from God. And my question is, your point? Of course they're running hard and fast away from God. They hate him right now. They're dead. But just like that, God called Lazarus out of the grave. Just like that, God raises the dead. And we have to have faith in that truth. We have to believe that that is always going to be true. So as long as there is life, there is hope. Cling to it. Guard it. Guard that hope with everything you have in you. Do not allow Satan to steal that hope by making you believe for one minute that you had anything to do with your own salvation, and neither can they. Hope exists so long as there is life. If the present course remains unchanged, the cursing is doom and it will certainly come. But so long as life endures, there is the potential for and the possibility of repentance. And this is our aim and hope in all of our interaction with the lost. Aim them at Christ. If repentance is not granted, destruction is certain. Okay? But if God grants repentance, life is certain. So aim them at Christ. You have nothing else to give them. You have nothing else to offer. You have nothing else that will be of any value to them whatsoever. You must aim them at him because nothing else will deliver them from the wrath to come. Look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. 
starting at verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And he who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Now if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, and we're going to start at verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought of worthy the one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The end for those who are not ultimately found in Christ is destruction. They will be burned. They will be cast out. And they will be damned. There is no possibility of escaping from the wrath of God if you are not found in Christ. No amount of good deeds. No religious fervor or outward faithfulness. No amount of anyone else's good or your own pedigree. No other God can deliver you from the hand of Yahweh. For there is no other God. No saint, no virgin, no person, no pastor, no priest, no parent, no one can save you apart from Jesus Christ. There is nothing else. And if we are not committed to that truth, we will be ineffective at the very least. If we're not committed to that truth, the people that we say we love will stand in danger. Now, God is God and saves his own. He will do what he is going to do with or without you. But that will not leave you guiltless. We are commanded to carry the truth of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the end, we do this because hell is eternal. Nobody gets out. Nobody escapes. Beloved, so long as there is life, there is hope. So long as there is the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed in the earth, there is hope for sinners. There's hope for our culture. There's hope for the world in which we live. But we who are the people of God must be clear about what that hope is it's the gospel. It's the truth of Christ, faithfully proclaimed. 
It is the power of God unto salvation. There is one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It is the name Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the weapon we have. And we must carry that faithfully unto the nations so that the glory of God might be proclaimed through us. Beloved, we have nothing else. And as long as you hold fast to that truth, you will be actively participating in the transformation of this culture. You may not see it. You may see only an increase of briars and thorns. But God is at work doing what He does. Amen? Amen. He's always at work doing what He does. And we must believe this. We must live for this. We must obey the commands of God regardless of what it looks like on the outside, trusting Him Trusting in his word, hoping in his goodness, hoping in his faithfulness, and know without question that whatever it is that God commands us to do will ultimately yield the harvest of righteousness that he intends to yield. Cling to that no matter what it looks like. Hold fast to that truth. Because every other thing that we try to put our stake in will shatter under our hands and harm us. It's always going to be that way. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you teach us the reality of how your word is true always. God, let your truth be resonating in our souls. Let your truth be always the thing which we seek after, always the thing which we desire. God, make us yours in every way that Christ will be honored in this place and that as he is honored in this place, we might be faithful and we might be productive. God, let us bear fruit according to righteousness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.